this morning comes from 2 Chronicles, chapter 36, verses 11 through 23. Zedekiah was 21 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned 11 years in Jerusalem. He did what was evil in the sight of the Lord his God. He did not humble himself before Jeremiah the prophet, who spoke from the mouth of the Lord. He also rebelled against King Nebuchadnezzar, who had made him swear by God. He stiffened his neck and hardened his heart against turning to the Lord, the God of Israel. All the officers of the priests and the people likewise were exceedingly unfaithful, following all the abominations of the nations. And they polluted the house of the Lord that he had made made holy in Jerusalem. The Lord, the God of their fathers, sent persistently to them by his messengers because he had compassion on his people and on his dwelling place. But they kept mocking the messengers of God, despising his words and scoffing at his prophets until the wrath of the Lord rose against his people, until there was no remedy. Therefore he brought up against them the king of the Chaldeans who killed their young men with the sword in the house of their sanctuary and had no compassion on young men or virgin or old man or aged. He gave them all into his hand and all the vessels of the house of God great and small, and the treasures of the house of the Lord, and the treasures of the king and of his princes, all these he brought to Babylon. And they burned the house of God and broke down the wall of Jerusalem and burned all its palaces with fire and destroyed all its precious vessels. He took into exile in Babylon those who escaped from the sword and they became servants to him and to his son until the establishment of the kingdom of Persia to fulfill the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah until the land had enjoyed its Sabbaths. All the days that it lay desolate, it kept Sabbath to fulfill 70 years. Now in the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, that the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled, the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, so that he made a proclamation through all his kingdom and also put it in writing. Thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, The Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth, and he has charged me to build him a house at Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Whoever is among you of all his people, may the Lord his God be with him. Let him go up. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray as we begin. Lord, I thank you for every one of us who's in this room. Thank you for the unique way you've made us and created each one of us. Um, Lord, you know our one great need is to know you, to love you with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. Our greatest desire is really to hear from you, the God who speaks still. Lord, that's why we come to your word. That's why we are here this morning, we want to worship you and we want to hear from you. God, please speak to us. Pray this in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Well, I have uh, two thoughts I want to begin with. Two things I, I uh, remembered or was reminded of this week. And the first is that I, I love this church, which means I, I love you all because <laughs> you are the church. Not that I love this building. The building's great. But I love you guys. Um, it's hard for me to imagine a church I'd rather pastor, and it's really been a joy to, to pastor you guys for these last two years. Um, 
My only regret is, I, I mean, I really think Vine Street deserves the best. And you got me, so <laughs> that's the only regret. But, um, but I'm so glad to be here. Second thing I was reminded of this week is that I also love, I also love the Bible. Uh, in a moment when I really needed to be reminded of this, I was reading Psalm 130, verse five, which says, I wait for the Lord, and my soul waits. And in his word, I hope. I hope in his word. Hope is a weighty word. It deals with the substance of things of life. If we could kind of pull everyone in this room and say, what are, what are your hopes? What do you hope in life? Probably to think about it. These are not things we keep kind of on the surface, but things would come up as like our hopes for our marriages, our hopes for our kids, our hopes for this church, our hopes for our vocations and careers and our hopes for our studies. And this begins to get into some really deep heart issues. And the reason I love God's word is because this is what it deals with. It deals with the deep things of life. You know, if you want to be entertained, if you want to zone out, if you just want to have fun, well, the Bible's probably not going to be the place. And there is a time to zone out and have fun, that, you know. But that's not what we want to devote our lives to. No one at the end of their life looks back and says, I'm so glad I wasted it on trivial things. No, we want to look back and say, I, my life mattered. It had significance. And the Bible deals with these significant things. Specifically, it helps us understand the deep things of God. Now, my sermon title, which is finishing up this very fast sprint through the book of First and Second Chronicles, the sermon title is The Deeps. And the reason is because as we're finishing up Chronicles, Chronicles is a book that deals with these deep things of life. It, it's written to a community that's seen great suffering. It's written about a community that experiences suffering. It touches on the deep themes of redemption and sin and grace. And it ends by focusing on this very hard theme of judgment. But even more, though, which is going to be my argument, even more than judgment is this focusing on the deep themes of grace and hope. And so the outline for us this morning is going to be first deep sadness, then deep grace, and then lastly deep hope. So just a a, a recap of where we went through the last two weeks, I pointed out how kind of from King David and Solomon until the end of the nation of Israel, they go through these cycles of Decline and then renewal. Decline and then renewal. And really, this is the history of the people of Israel from the beginning. It didn't didn't begin with David and Solomon. This is just a regular cyclical pattern we see. And we looked at at Hezekiah, uh, who in his kingship, we saw one of those renewals and what it looks like and what biblical renewal looks like. And there are two kings after, and and, uh, sorry, two kings after Hezekiah comes Josiah. So there's Hezekiah, there's two kings, and there's King Josiah, who also is, is a king who oversees kind of a time of renewal in Israel. We see his reign right before we get to chapter 36. He's the last king to see a renewal in the nation of Israel before the end of the nation. And in Josiah's time, you just to give you an idea again of how bad things get when it declines in the nation of Israel, Josiah is restoring the temple. He's refinishing it, making it suitable for worship, and they discover the law. They discover, basically, they discover the Bible. Things are getting pretty bad when you forget that there's a Bible, okay? And they discover it, and they read it, and, uh, and it leads to renewal, and they see that they're supposed to celebrate the Passover, and so they celebrate the Passover. And in fact, in chapter 35, verse 18, it says that no Passover like it 
had been kept in Israel since the days of Samuel the prophet. None of the kings of Israel had kept such a Passover as was kept by Josiah. Even David and Solomon didn't compare to what God is doing through Josiah. He's the last king to see renewal. But here's what's really shocking is, is Josiah oversees this great renewal, but then he dies in battle at the age of 39, which back then would still have been very young, but in the heart or the, 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 the golden years of his reign, he dies, and then the, the kingdom of Israel declines at just this remarkable speed. Within 22 years of King Josiah, the one who is celebrating Passover, such as there had never been one celebrated before, revival and reform is breaking out. 22 years later, Nebuchadnezzar shows up and burns the temple down, destroys the city of Jerusalem, and that ends the southern kingdom of Jerusalem, or sorry, southern kingdom of Judah. Just, it's remarkable how fast it is. And just to give you, in, in, in this whole decline, we see in chapter 36, I'm gonna give us an overview because it just goes through king after king. It's very fast. This is a quick overview. This is all in 22 years. So Josiah dies in battle. His son, Jeho Ahaz, is installed as king. He reigns for three months and then he's deposed by Pharaoh, king of Egypt, who's the one who kills Josiah, by the way. And Pharaoh comes in and he deposes Jeho Ahaz and puts in place his brother, Jehoiakim. Jehoiakim reigns for 11 years. Then he is deposed by another ruler, Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon. And he's replaced by his son, Jehoiachin, who reigns for three months, who is then also deposed by Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon. And at that point, there are actually no kings left in the reign of, in the, in the kind of lineage. And so he has to go with Jehoiachin's uncle, Zedekiah. And Zedekiah is the last king to reign in the southern kingdom before the end. And it's just a rapid procession of kings, and they're all bad, and it ends even worse. But there are two themes that you see as you look through these kings that the chronicler is emphasizing to us. And they're both themes that bring out a really deep sadness as we see the kingdom of Israel come to an end in judgment. And the first theme that we see in these four kings that come in rapid succession is first the decline of the temple and the Davidic kingship. As we've seen throughout the book of Chronicles, these are two things that are tied together. When the king is doing well, he naturally wants to reinstitute right worship. And vice versa, when the king is not doing badly, the temple declines. And in these four kings, we see a decline in both. In each of the kings, the temple's plundered to some extent. Either they have to plunder it to give tribute, or literally Nebuchadnezzar comes in, just takes what he wants, takes the utensils, the gold, takes it back to Babylon. And so it's the, the temple is, is continually plundered more and more until finally it's emptied and burned to the ground. And that's in the last final stage when Nebuchadnezzar destroys Jerusalem. And it's an apt illustration for where Israel is spiritually at that point. A burned out hollow shell of where they once were. But we also see the decline of the Davidic line. See, well, spiritually, for one, all four of these kings are bad guys. They're worshiping idols. They're not leading the people towards God. But there's also a decline politically. Josiah is the last king to rule independently. Every king after that is, is kind of a semi-dependent, semi-independent monarch. Um, when, uh, so you remember Jehu Ahaz, he's Josiah's son. He's deposed by Pharaoh, and Pharaoh's like, nope, I don't want you to be king. I'm gonna make your brother king. And then he renames his brother just to show how much power Egypt now has over Israel. And then when Egypt wanes because Babylon is now the new superpower, Nebuchadnezzar does the same thing. He installs who he wants. And so we see a decline in the political power of the Davidic line until finally it ends 
with, um, with Zedekiah being taken into exile. So that's one, one um, theme of sadness is the decline of the temple and the Davidic kingship. And we gotta think, you know, when you consider the theological importance of the temple, again, the temple was, was where God would dwell. And the promise of the people of Israel is this is, this is where God's gonna be. It doesn't matter what's going on in your life. It doesn't matter where you are. You can pray to this temple and he'll hear you. And now the temple's burned. It's tragedy. When you think of the joys and the optimism and the hope when it was dedicated under Solomon, here finally is a place where God is going to make his name known. There's hopes that the nations might come and you're watching it burn. Just deep sadness in this. The other theme that's drawn out in, this, in these four kings is this, is this foreshadowing of exile. Each of these four kings are bad kings and all of them are taken into exile. Um, the first one goes to Egypt, the next three are taken to Babylon. And they all foreshadow the great exile when all the people will be taken into exile. And of course there's deep sadness in that as well. Whenever I think of exile, I think of one of my favorite movies of all time, Fiddler on the Roof if you haven't seen it, again, I, I know it's a Broadway show for all you purists. I haven't seen the Broadway show, but I've seen the movie and it is fantastic. If you haven't seen it, it's a story of a kind of uh, Jewish community in pre-revolutionary Russia. So this is Russia, early 1900s. And at the very end of the movie, it's, it's a small, close-knit community. You see their like quirks and their difficulties and the beauties of this very small, deeply connected community. At the very end, the Russian government comes in and says, you have 24 hours to leave, get out, or we're gonna drive you out with guns. And so the last scene is, is, this, is this community of people who've known no other home, whose parents knew no other home, whose grandparents knew no other home, lived in this community for generations, and, and now they're, they're, they're dispersing to wherever will take them, four corners of the earth. And there's just a deep sadness as they're saying goodbye to friends who they've known their whole life. It gives us a sense of what the exile of Israel, like, of Israel was like, although it was worse because it involved a brutal battle and a siege and you weren't just saying goodbye to your friends, you also watched your friends get slaughtered in front of you. Just so much sadness in this exile. And of course, theologically, what is the exile, but it's the exodus reversed. What was the exodus? The exodus was God delivering Israel out of bondage to the promised land, and now the exile is God delivering Israel from the promised land back into slavery. Just a lot of sadness in this passage. And it's, it's interesting, even as you read through it, I mean, Again, the, the chronicler, he would have been a few generations after this, so he wouldn't have been alive, but it would have been living memory. I mean, this would have been something close to home. And even the way he retells the story, the way he goes through it so fast, there's a sense in which he doesn't, he doesn't want to stop and linger. You know, all the other stories have so many details, and here he's just like, boom, 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 and we went into exile. There's like a grief and even not wanting to really dwell on it that you get in this. We see the deep sadness of the consequences of sin. You know, we, can, we talk about a lot of outcomes of sin. We talk about God's wrath, we talk about shame, we talk about guilt, judgment. One thing I'm not sure we talk about as much, though, is the sadness that comes from sin. Whether it comes immediately, sometimes, or, or ultimately, it'll certainly come. But we oftentimes don't think about it that way, so that, you know, the spouse who's considering having an affair, they're probably not considering the grief it's gonna bring to them and their kids and their spouse. We oftentimes don't consider the grief that our pride brings over time as it erodes and corrodes the relationships around us that matter. 
We don't think about the grief of just God's absence. You know, we, we picture hell a lot of times in kind of more of a Dante's Inferno, which by the way is not in the Bible. <laughs> we picture it in this like seven levels of burning fire and I think the worst part of hell is God's absence. Because get it, if God is the source of all that is good and true and beautiful, hell is nothing that is good, nothing that is true, nothing that is beautiful. It's God's absence. There's sadness there that is deep. As Chronicles finishes, we see this deep sadness. And it's, you know, it's interesting. It, the emphasis is, 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 is it's the result of, of sin and faithlessness, but you gotta think, there was a remnant of the faithful in Israel who still wanted to worship God, and yet they experienced the, the results of this. There's just, there is sadness in life. It's because we live in a broken world where things don't work how they're supposed to. And oftentimes, the sadness we experience is not a direct outcome of some failing or moral failing, but it's just life. There's deep sadness. But that's not the main emphasis of this text. But rather, we see God's grace meets the depths of sadness. And what we see is that God's grace is even deeper than the depth of sadness that we see in this text. So this brings us to our second point, deep grace. Now, you may ask me, okay, this is primarily about judgment. Where is there grace in judgment? This does not seem like a very hopeful thing. Well, think about this, you know, the last chapter, it seems almost inevitable where Israel's heading towards judgment. And so if you want to think like Israel's on this highway to judgment, that's the image we want to use here. It is a highway that is lined with exit after exit of grace. All the way up until the very end, there are exits of grace. And there are people calling out, prophets calling out, exit here before it's too late. Look at verses 11 to 14 with me. Zedekiah was 21 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned 11 years in Jerusalem. And he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord his God. He did not humble himself before Jeremiah the prophet, who spoke from the mouth of the Lord. He also rebelled against King Nebuchadnezzar, who made him swear to God. He stiffened his neck. He hardened his heart against turning to the Lord, the God of Israel. And all the officers of the priests and the people likewise were exceedingly unfaithful following all the abominations of the nations, and they polluted the house of the Lord that he had made holy in Jerusalem. Zedekiah was a bad king. I mean, you're not that surprised that God brings judgment, but here's the thing, Zedekiah was not, he was kind of like the final straw. The picture here is, is there is this growing weight of, of faithlessness throughout the generations, and Zedekiah, he's bad, but he's really more of one who kind of seals the judgment than really the ultimate cause. There's generations of, of the people rebelling and sinning against God. In fact, when Josiah finds the law in the temple, he rediscovers it and he reads the stipulations of the covenant that God made with Israel, which is incredible stipulations. If, if you worship God and love him and turn to him and seek his face, he's gonna bless you. Like, this is like the prosperity gospel, right? Like, he'll bless you physically, he'll give you affluence and you'll have victory over your enemies but if you, if you reject God there's going to be punishment and eventually it'll lead to exile and when Josiah reads this he's terrified because he realizes we have we, like we're headed for judgment and he cries out to God and God sends a prophet and the prophet tells him in chapter 34 so this is just two chapters before the end thus says the Lord behold I will bring disaster upon this place and upon its inhabitants 
all the curses that are written in the book that was read before the king of Judah, because they have forsaken me and have made offerings to other gods. They might provoke me to anger with all the works of their hands. Therefore, my wrath will be poured out on this people and will not be quenched. So Zedekiah's kingship was bad, but it was really just sealing this coming judgment that was already building towards the people of Israel. But again, look at verses 15 to 16. This is where we see these exits of grace. The Lord, the God of their fathers, he sent persistently to them by his messengers because he had compassion on his people and in his dwelling place. But they kept mocking the messengers of God, despising his words, scoffing at his prophets, until the wrath of the Lord rose against his people, till there was no remedy. Summarizing how God had interacted with the people of Israel throughout their history, sending them prophet after prophet, pursuing them with his compassion, his grace, exit here, exit here. There's still time. To use this highway analogy, and this illustration isn't aging well, um, before the days of ubiquitous GPS on our phones, um, it was pretty common if you were absent-minded that you'd miss your exit. So like if you printed off MapQuest directions, if you're older, you remember those, and it'd be like, exit at, you know, exit 15. And you're like, okay, whatever. And then you're talking to your friend, and you're like, oh, I missed the exit, no. And the worst thing, though, that would happen is when the next time would say, next exit, 25 miles. Like, oh my gosh, like, this is gonna be an hour additional time, because we're gonna have to get off the exit, turn around, come back. Again, it, we don't do that anymore, because we have these like, amazing phones that say, get off here, dummy, and you're like, okay, I got it, I'm good. That's not how God was in here. It wasn't like, I'm gonna send one prophet, you missed it, 25 miles to your next one. It was, I mean, the, the picture here, yes, the judgment is, is hard, but the whole highway is just lined with prophet after prophet. People, what you're pursuing is not, it's not true, it's not God, it's not leading to a good place, like exit here. See God's compassion. This is grace. It was all up to the end. Look at verse 12. This is uh, Zedekiah did what was evil in the sight of the Lord as God. He did not humble himself before Jeremiah the prophet who spoke from the mouth of the Lord. Jeremiah the prophet prophesied literally up until the temple was burned. And then afterwards, even, God telling the remnants, still calling to them out of his compassion and his love for them. I mean, it was literally up until the end, there were exits of grace if Israel was only listen, willing to listen to God, but they resisted. Um, my grandpa, who, who, who I loved, he was a generous man, wonderful man. He's not a Christian. He grew up kind of nominal Episcopalian, rejected that faith when he was a teenager. And as far as we know, he never came back. And when he died about five years ago, there was deep questions in my family because we had prayed for him for decades. Like, Lord, save my grandpa. Open his eyes to his need for forgiveness. And as far as we know, my grandpa never did turn to Christ. And that was hard to deal with. It was hard to f process that. Is God unjust? Was he not merciful? What I realized, part of this was going to the funeral and meeting people who had known my grandpa through all the seasons of his life, one of the things I realized is that God had given my grandpa in every season of his life Christians who would talk to him about Jesus. He gave him a daughter, who that's my mom, who experienced a radical conversion in college that makes no sense except for the grace of God. Up until the end, he had a nurse. He, he was sick the last few years. He had a nurse. Guess what? She was a Christian in his house every day. And so I... 
I can't think about the thought of my grandpa in hell. It doesn't, I, I can't. But I could not help but acknowledge, God, you were gracious to my grandpa to the end. And he just rejected you. Here we see the grace and the compassion of God that he will relentlessly pursue even sinners who will ultimately reject him. And there have been Christians throughout the history of the church that have had profound glimpses and understandings of the God who relentlessly pursues us in his grace and his compassion. One of them was a poet named Francis Thompson. He wrote a poem you've probably heard of. It's called The Hound of Heaven. You might not have actually read it. It's kind of hard to read. It's archaic language. The whole picture of the poem is he pictures God as this hound of heaven. You know, a, a, a hound is a dog that chases down people and, and God is chasing him through the twists and turns of his life and he keeps resisting God because he thinks God is going to take everything he wants in life and then finally he realizes that God is pursuing him because he knows that he'll never have life unless he has it in Christ. And it's all the more profound when you realize that this poet, Francis Thompson, he, he really understood the relentless pursuit of God's compassion as someone who struggled with a narcotic addiction his whole life. He was even homeless for a few years. He understood the twists and turns in which God pursued him to the end out of his compassion and his love. This kind of deep grace and love of God has inspired poets and hymnists. Think of the, the hymn, The Love of God by Frederick Lehman. The love of God is greater far than tongue or pen can ever tell. It goes beyond the highest star and it reaches to the lowest hell beyond what we could give words to. It's compassion of God that runs after us, pursues us. It's God pursuing you right now. Is he calling you back from a weary exile, maybe from a, a double life you've been living that no one knows about, from the false joys this is who God is. If he's the God who is the hound of heaven, who will love sinners like us and out of his compassion, he'll pursue us, why would we resist him? God's grace is deeper still. Last observation on this deep grace. You may say, well, Mike, that's great to talk about grace. Judgment still comes, though. Yes, it's true. But even in this text, judgment is not the final word. Look at verses 22 to 23. Now in the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, that the word of the Lord might be, might by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled, the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, so that he made a proclamation throughout all his kingdom and also put it in writing. Thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, the Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth, and he has charged me to build him a house at Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Whoever is among you, of all his people, May the Lord his God be with him. Let him go up. It finishes with God redeeming his people and bringing them back, using Cyrus, a pagan king, to once again rebuild his temple. Yes, the judgment is hard to read and it's a hard truth in scripture. We don't shy away from it, but it's still not the last word. God's judgment is deep, but his grace is deeper still. And that's the final word we get in the story. God's deep grace. But it's not just deep grace we see in this story. We also see some deep hope. This is my third point, deep hope. And we see this in that God is one who keeps his word. 
God had promised his people Israel, if they rebelled against him, he'd send them into exile. When he does that, he's keeping his promise. Now, that may not sound very encouraging <laughs> because he's keeping his promise on judgment. But if you remember, when he, when he gave the law to the people of Israel, he promised them if they rejected him, he would send them into exile. And again and again, he speaks to them, and he tells them, if you, if you reject me, he keeps his promises. God is good for his promises, but the reason why that's a source of deep hope for us is that that includes other promises that he's good for, including the promise he made to Israel that he would send a king, the king they needed, the king they longed for, who would lead them and provide for all the other needs that they needed. One of the themes of, of Chronicles is that they need a king. When a king leads well, the temple worship goes well. When a king leads badly, everything falls apart. And they need another king like the King David. But what's interesting as we go through Chronicles is we see that they need more than just a, a godly human king because they have godly kings who aren't, able to who aren't able to prevent this judgment, right? They had Jehoshaphat. I made an argument that I think he might have been the most godly king Israel ever had. But he wasn't able to prevent judgment. We had Josiah right before this. He wasn't enough. Because if you remember, again, at the end of Jehoshaphat's reign, even though he had led so well and honored God and trusted God, there's this note that, yeah, but the people's hearts were not committed. And no godly king can provide an example that can transform the human heart. Examples can't do that. They needed more. They needed regeneration, spiritual regeneration, and no human king can provide that. They also needed a remedy for their guilt. Get a really sobering line in verse 16, chapter 36. It says, but they kept mocking the messengers of God. They were despising his words. They were scoffing as prophets until the wrath of the Lord rose against his people until there was no remedy. Jehoshaphat was a godly king, but he was no remedy for the, the curse of sin. Josiah was a godly king, but he was no remedy for the, the judgment of sin. They needed something more. And God had promised, and he was good for his word. And he sent a king, who is Jesus Christ, who not only fulfilled their need of someone who would lead them to God, but also all their spiritual needs. Jesus is one who would lead us to God in a way no one else could. John chapter 14, verses 8 and 9, Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father, and it's enough for us. And Jesus said to him, have I been with you so long, and you don't know me, Philip, Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. No, I mean, every king of Israel was leading people to a God whom he wasn't, but Jesus is like, I am the I am. I am in the Father, and the Father is in me. When, when we come to Jesus, we come to God. He could lead us to God like no other king could. Jesus also regenerates us. He gives us new hearts, 2 Corinthians 5, 17. If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. If you're in Christ, you're a new creation. God doesn't just forgive us and then give us a blank slate and give us a kick out the door and say, keep going, buddy. He makes us into new people so that we can avoid these cycles of decline and renewal. And lastly, Jesus is the remedy for guilt. John 1.19, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. The blood of bulls and goats could never really take away sin. It was always a temporary measure. The blood of the perfect Lamb of God could take away the sin of the whole world. Jesus was the remedy 
that no sacrifice, no godly king could accomplish. And so this was a deep hope for the people of Israel. God had proven himself, he is one who will keep his promises. And he promised to send a king who, who would come from the line of David, whose kingdom would be forever, who'd be, a very, who'd be the actual son of God. So you gotta imagine, here's returning exiles. They've spent 70 to 100 years in exile. They're coming back to a country that's barren and desolate. All the, I mean, you know, their houses are still there, they're rubble. You gotta wonder, they're thinking, how can God bring beauty out of these ashes, of this carnage? What can God possibly do? But God had proven that he was good for his promises and he had promised to send a king and he would. And in fact, God would accomplish through that king, through his son, far more than Israel expected as they returned to their land. There's a deep hope for Israel. There's also a deep hope for us. Fine Street, God is good for his promises. He's good for his promises. He's promised he'll never leave you. He'll never leave you as an orphan. Your mom and your dad may abandon you. Some of them have. God won't leave you. He's promised that every circumstance you experience this week, he's working in it for your good. He's promised that. He's promised that he's gonna send his spirit into us, the very presence of God to live with us, to give us power as we pursue holiness, to give us fruitfulness in our witness and our ministry. God is good for his promises. And you know what, we're, we're also waiting for a king. The king came, and after he accomplished the work he'd come to accomplish, he ascended to the right hand of the Father. And as the creed said this morning, he'll come again to judge the living and the dead. We also are waiting for a king. We're waiting for Jesus to return, who's gonna make, make right every wrong and wipe away every tear and and finally, we'll be with him without there being this veil in between. We won't know him by faith. We'll know him by the seeing of our eyes. He's promised. And he's good to his promise. Christian, the king has come and he's gonna come again. And we live in this in-between time, in between the first coming and the second coming, where in one hand, we live in a, a world that's just marred by the sadness of sin. We experience it in our own hearts. We see it in the world around us. But at the same time, we live under the deep grace of the God who pursues us into all the little places we run to hide from him. And he's relentless. He won't give up. He's a God who is good for his promises. And so we stand upon that hope as we wait for the king to return. Let's pray. Jesus, we, we trust that you are good for your promises. That all the promises of God are yes and amen in you. Lord, we confess often we grow discouraged, we grow distracted, we forget. Please remind us. Help us to build all our hope on the truth that your promises are true. You will accomplish all that you said you will. And the mystery of your providence, you'll use people like us to do it. You'll use churches like Vine Street Baptist Church to do it. So we pray all this in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen.